If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 2 Corwin could not bring herself to get out of bed the following morning. Over and over again she was back in that moonlit garden in the arms of that mythical creature, utterly in awe, entirely enraptured, and then callously humiliated. Could the Earl of Kettering so bewitch every woman he met? Was this white-hot desire something he created, or was it some strange magic that happened whether he wanted it to or not? He had seemed so entirely disinterested in her to start. It shamed her to admit it, but if Lord Black had come to visit her today, as Norfolk had come the day after he stole a kiss, Corwin would certainly have come to the parlour to see him. After his apology, she would have asked him questions about his hands and why they were so calloused, would have wanted to know why he had spent so much time in the sun. She would have had a hundred questions for him, and then she might have allowed him another kiss. Had she intended Lord Norfolk to see the Earl of Kettering take her outside last night? Had that been her actual intent? Had she tried to use him to dissuade Henry from preying upon her further? She could remember seeing Norfolk approach, hating the very sight of him, and wanting desperately to flee. She could remember feeling faint, frightened, wanting someone to rescue her. She had reached for the Earl and he had led her out onto the terrace. He had known what she wanted and he had given it to her. Would her brother have so ill-treated a girl who had asked him to accompany her outside because she felt faint? Certainly not. He was a perfect gentleman. Clearly the Earl was not. Would she want him to be? Again the memory came. Lord Black's lips hot upon hers, the smell of his skin, then the shame of his rejection. Why had she not stopped him? Why had she not wanted to? With Norfolk Corwin had felt only revulsion. She had hated every second spent in his arms could still taste his fetid mouth and smell his many perfumes. She had come home to bathe in the hottest water she could stand to try and wash the memory of him away. She feared, with every fiber of her being, ever having him touch her again. But that was not what she felt for the Earl of Kettering. Lady Christina Wakefield interrupted Corwin's excruciating reverie with a quick rap on her bedroom door. Despite Corwin's lack of response, the statuesque blonde let herself into the cream-and-white bedroom. She swept to the lace curtains and threw them open, admitting the mid-morning light that poured through the green trees in the garden just outside Corwin's window. Then Christina settled herself upon the wide bed, draping the ivory and blue silk of her skirts artfully around her. Good morning my dear. I see you have given up that dreadful habit of rising early. She said. She seemed quite relaxed and very composed but it was unusual, and anxiety-provoking, that she should enter Corwin's room before noon. Christina, seven years Corwin's senior, seemed born and bred for life at the top of the tawn. 
married at 17 to a very wealthy peer, then widowed just three years later, she had property and an income for life from her husband's estates. She also had an independent income from her parents who had died when she was just a girl. As a rich childless widow, entirely at liberty to marry again, Christina would have been beautiful no matter what she looked like. But, as it happened Christina was truly quite lovely to see. She had bright blue eyes, radiant blonde hair, flawless milk and honey skin, and lips that were honestly the color of ripe cherries. Her figure, slender, full-breasted, long-limbed, made whatever she wore look like the height of fashion, and women across the city followed her lead when it came to what they wore each season. I have given up rising altogether. In fact, I can think of no reason at all why I should ever get out of bed. Said Corwin. Christina smiled. Well, I in a moment of madness, rose and went to an early morning tea in Kensington at the special invitation of Lady Margaret Thorpe. Do you remember her? She's an elderly heavy-set woman with a great love of tea and cake. She and her hens meet twice a week to gossip. Nothing happens in the city that they don't know about. She paused to finger the elaborate ruffle of Corwin's bed. Much to my surprise I discovered that you have a dangerous, and dangerously attractive new suitor. I rushed home to hear all about him. Christina gave Corwin a slanted look. I have a suitor? Corwin's blood ran cold. You have at least two, I am told. Last night you slipped into the garden with the Earl of Kettering and lingered there long in the moonlight. The Earl simply took me onto the terrace because I felt faint. I had too much wine, too much rich food, and I became overheated from the dance. I was going to be sick and the Earl helped me find some fresh air. Said Corwin. Well, as it happens, Lord Norfolk saw you exit. He was rather surprised since you had promised him the very next dance and some private moments alone at a late-night supper. He followed the pair of you out. He saw the Duke ravish you and, I am told, he feels he can no longer pay you the attention he has in the past. Good. Said Corwin, feeling her mood lighten a little. I am very glad something has finally driven him off. Though, of course, I never agreed to dance with him or share a supper of any kind. In fact he swore it was you that had obligated me to entertain him after the ball, and I called him a liar. He said we three were to share a meal with several of his friends. But, to be clear, you did go into the garden. Said Christina. I did. Conceded Corwin. And did you allow the Earl to ravish you? Well, he kissed me. I don't know that I allowed him to. Men in London do not seem to feel the need to wait for permission to do anything. Does any of this really matter? From what I have seen of London society, people are so jaded, so crude, that a man stealing a kiss from a maid means nothing at all. Said Corwin. Well, my darling girl, I am afraid you have quite the wrong end of things. You are presumed to be an innocent. A young unmarried woman with a small estate who might make a good marriage if she were of good character. You were being very publicly pursued by a quite eligible bachelor, though he has chased many he has later declined to marry. You have offended him mightily by quite clearly indicating your preference for the attentions of another. If such tales as are spreading today become commonly accepted, you will become soiled goods. It will be impossible to make a good marriage. I think I have mentioned that Henry was not a man you should offend. These stories are his way of settling accounts. Said Christina. Corwin said nothing for a long time. Then she sighed. Christina, I really feel no need at all to ever go out in public again. I've no patience for these people and their wickedness. I should simply return home to my little manor and leave all this madness behind. I may never marry. I have no real desire to do so. Corwin said, wondering if that were true. 
Until last night she had never understood that what passed between men and women could be pleasurable to the female, or at least pleasurable to her. Certainly she knew there were gin-soaked trollops that enjoyed the attentions of many men, but she had assumed this was simply due to the payment they received. She had always imagined herself eventually becoming a wife and a mother, but now that future was starting to look like a prison sentence. Did she want to be perpetually under the thumb of some man? Christina stared at her as if she were mad. Let us not be ridiculous Corwin. If every woman accused of some deceitful flirtation decided to abandon social life, there would not be a half-dozen of us left. What you must do now is put light to these tales by being out and about where everyone can see you. You must show, by your charming manner and easy smile, you have not the guile or dark heart required to deceive honest men or take lovers. But I do not care what people say about me. Said Corwin. But I very much care Corwin. Your reputation affects me. And Ben will care as well. By all accounts his sister has been ruined by a rogue. You would not want your brother to call out the Earl for making advances, nor call out Henry for spreading lies. You must take action to put this scandal behind you. You must continue to expand your acquaintance while being the very model of decorum going forward. Every season has a scandal or two, and most involve some young girl who never put a foot wrong. Given time such tales almost always fade away and that is what must happen this time. Right now this is a rumor known in a few quarters, but if it becomes widely known, widely accepted, Ben will certainly be drawn in. I think we can agree this is something that must not happen. No, of course not. Tell me what I can do. Asked Corwin. Arise. We'll off to Bond Street where you may forget your sorrows in new gowns while we decide which of our invitations to accept tonight said Christina. Corwin slipped out of bed and moved to the wardrobe. It had never occurred to her that Ben might hear these lies. As she selected a pale green day dress with a high neck, and waited while Christina summoned a maid to aid her, she thought about how angry he would be. He was perfectly capable of calling someone out for offending his sister. He would do it without a thought. As she allowed herself to be washed, quaffed, and dressed, Corwin silently swore she would go forward as placid, featureless and patient as a china doll. When her brother left for the new world in a few weeks' time, then she too would leave London. She would return to the West Country, to her estate, and there she would remain with her books, her lands, and the people who loved her. She wanted nothing, least of all a husband, from this horrible city. At last you are come. I have been waiting for hours my lord. Devon Black, having just entered the parlour of his rented flat, was startled to see that Lady Hughes, Barbara as she had begged him to call her, had drained one bottle of his best Madeira, and a second sat open beside her. Her clothes lay in a rumpled heap near the fire and she was dressed only in a white sheet she had taken from his bed. How long had she wandered his home without supervision and why had she taken it upon herself to come without his express permission? Are you not happy to see me? She asked when he said nothing. My lady. I must confess I am in the habit of inviting women into my home, not having them deliver themselves uninvited. But, you invited me just two days past. Protested Barbara coquettishly. Do you not recall? She stood, leaving the sheet in the chair. The firelight painted her pale skin gold, flickered in her brown eyes, and caressed her auburn hair. Under normal circumstances he would have found her attractive, perhaps even inviting. Now he found her nothing more than a nuisance. Two days ago I asked you in. Yesterday morning I escorted you home. Do you not have a husband to attend to? 
I fear he will come looking for you if you are gone too long. Devon finally decided to remove his cloak. He refused to be driven back out into the rain by an overlusty wench on what was quickly turning out to be one of the worst days of his life. He dumped the sodden mass over the back of a chair and ran his hands through his wet hair. Please get dressed my lady, and I shall have my man deliver you wherever you wish to go. Surely you do not fear John. He is at the theatre my lord. We have an arrangement, he and I. I have given him three children, all sons, in five years. Our duty to one another is done. Barbara smiled winsomely. Black found himself wondering where the children were, and who was caring for them, as these two hedonistic parents wandered from bed to bed. How marvellous for you both. Nevertheless, I believe I will have my coachman drive you home. I already have an engagement I must attend this evening and that does not leave me free to entertain you. Devon moved to the bell cord which hung near a window and gave it two hard jerks. Why had his man allowed this woman into his apartments? Was that really something he had to be told not to do? Shocked, Barbara's eyes flicked from his face, to the cord, to his face again. Then, flushed and spitting obscenities, she dove for her clothes. She pulled on the corset and crinolines, the underskirt, her court shoes, and last of all her gown of emerald green. I am no tart to be used and cast away. How dare you dismiss me? She spat, lacing the dress up the front with careless fingers. And I am no stud to service English mares on demand. Should I come to your home on the morrow, let myself in, undress, and demand your attentions as you have come to demand mine? Asked Devon. He picked up the correspondence in a silver tray and began to look through it. Shall we test your husband's tolerance to find its absolute limits? I hear tell you have taken up with that black-haired witch from Cornwall. She's a trollop. Did you know? She has lain with half the grooms in her brother's stables and most of the men in the Queen's court. She is like her cousin, ever ready to spread her legs for any man who looks at her. Barbara said as she pulled her hair back. You are a fool if you prefer her to me. Devon looked up. I have no connection at all with that girl so I have no interest at all in her reputation. A soft rap on the parlour door caused both their heads to turn. So many wagging tongues, my lord. Will you tell me they are all wrong? Fully dressed she moved past him to pick up her heavy wool cloak and her hat. In a moment she was out the door and following his man-servant down the hall. Devon walked to the chair she had just vacated, picked up the bottle she had just put down, and drank from it deeply. He had heard enough about Lady Chase in the last few hours to last a lifetime. She was a wealthy heiress, a harlot, a scheming shrew, a victim of lies, or a hoyden who any man could have for the price of a handsome cab. For his part, Devon remembered dark hair, wide eyes, a beautiful body, and a manner that seemed to embody all the innocence in the world. Could Lady Chase be the strumpet the rumours claimed she was? A lifetime spent with pirate slave traders and criminals of every description have given Devon a sixth sense for deception. He found it hard to believe his understanding of her could be so flawed. He could almost believe that Lord Norfolk was her lover, or more aptly put, that she was his victim. It hadn't taken him long to learn that the man had too many titles to list, too much wealth to count, and made a habit of despoiling honourable women from time to time. In fact he was a predator in every possible context. Many a man had lost his fortune at the gaming tables to the dangerous standy. Almost as many had lost their lives to him on the field of honour. Lord Norfolk lived to destroy. Perhaps the little Lady Chase had seen a chance to rid herself of the blackguard, had thought that he might lose interest if she led another man into the garden. But a man like Lord Norfolk would not be dissuaded by such an act. He would be incensed by it. Devon swallowed another mouthful of wine. 
Under other circumstances he might have taken up this stupid girl's cause. He was more than capable of delivering the demise Lord Norfolk so richly deserved. Devon had rescued a woman or five in his time, and thrashing heavy-handed brutes was always something of a pleasure. But, he simply could not put himself at odds with a man who counted the Queen and half the peers of England his closest relations. It would cost him everything he had fought a lifetime for. So the black-haired vixen, innocent or well-used, would have to find another knight in shining armour to take up her cause. Her brother, by all appearances a well-meaning idiot who cared more about his career in the military and his future in the new world than his sister or the lands he was abandoning, should be the one taking up her fight. For the time being he appeared entirely ignorant of Lord Norfolk's attentions to the girl. Which might well be for the best. Norfolk had a way with a blade, and Lord Chase would likely find himself dead should he call the older man out. Black stared into the fire, pondering how the future seemed determined to unfurl. Eventually he admitted to himself that he wished he could dispose of Lord Norfolk like the rabid dog he was, and take the girl as reward for his good deed. He did not care if she had slept with one man or a hundred, were a virgin or a whore. He wished that he had finished what he had started on those dark steps under a cold sky. For all the trouble she had been, and was going to be, that is exactly what he should have done. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart, voice recording copyright 2019 by Nancy Fulton, music by Alexander Shavarev licensed from Pond 5.